Okay, so uh, meditation is found in the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Those are the three path factors that point at meditation. So, just for uh, a brief overview, right effort. Right effort is to prevent unskillful thoughts from arising. To abandon unskillful thoughts once they have arisen. To develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen. To maintain skillful thoughts that are already there. That is right effort. So now we need to ask ourselves, what is a skillful thought and what is an unskillful thought? A skillful thought is generosity, kindness, and wisdom. An unskillful thought is greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, the idea is to sort of become aware of your thought process, to sort of see what's going on in your head. And in order to do that, you can't be those thoughts. You have to be separate from those thoughts. You have to observe those thoughts. And at that point in your observation, you realize that you don't have to be those thoughts because they are simply the mind thinking. Thinking, 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 thinking. So how do we get to that place where we can observe our thoughts and not have to be them? And a Buddhist would say, well, that's one of the reasons we meditate, is we sit quietly and let thoughts occur, and we observe the thoughts. Now, that's mindfulness for sure. But in the concentration meditation, which I talked about last time, what we do is we put all those thoughts aside. We don't get wrapped up in them. We don't cling to them. We don't defend ourselves from them. We simply let them go. And the way we do that is to have an object of meditation that is our primary focus. So our primary focus could be the sensation of breath because we always have that. And I thought, what a wonderful technique that is. We don't have to have a candle or look at a mandala or listen to some sacred music. All we need to do is become aware of the sensation of breath. And that sensation of breath is always occurring right now. Sensation, now, equals the same thing. If you are aware of a sensation, like a bad knee, a sore foot, um, that's happening right now. You know, and, and so our job is not to necessarily abandon that. Our job as a meditator is to simply observe that. So you're sitting in full lotus on the floor, 
And if you're like me, uh, I can't sit in full lotus on the floor. I can get to maybe almost a half lotus and Burmese style, and I can still get to the floor, but sometimes it's hard to get off the floor. (laughs) And I have to attribute that to age. You know, when you're young, you can do a lot of stuff that you can't do when you're old physically. So there you are sitting on the floor, you finally made it, and you're cross-legged in some form or another. And all of a sudden, that ankle starts to hurt, and that knee starts to hurt. And you say to yourself, why am I doing all this? What's the point? I'm never going to get enlightened anyway. I've been doing it for 20 years, and nothing seems to happen. And then the gong rings, and meditation is over, and you get up as best you can and limp to the door and get into your car and drive on the 405 freeway and just hate everybody that cuts you off. And you said, you know, all that bliss and happiness that almost occurred while I was in meditation is definitely gone now. That the world itself is really a difficult place to live in because it's challenging us all the time. It's never the way it's supposed to be. And that's the real downside I found of being educated at whatever level we're educated at is you have expectations. That's why you went to school. You had to learn how to have a good life and what a good life meant to you. And some people say, I can hardly wait to go back to the cabin in the woods because that's the best part of my life. And I'm thinking... Well, there are spiders and bears and wolves and widowmakers. You know what a widowmaker is? That's when a branch falls off a tall tree and hits somebody in the head and kills them. <laughs> a widowmaker. <laughs> and, and that's the person's happy place in that environment. So for me, I've never been much of an outdoor guy. I appreciate it. I like to look at it for a while, but, you know, I've been in the city for too long now. So to me, you know, an outdoor uh, pleasant experience is having a sidewalk that's not dirty, you know, a crosswalk that actually works so you don't have to worry about getting killed, and not having any guys on those scooters behind you going 20 miles an hour. That, to me, is a good day in the urban environment. So how can we change our mind? How can we change the way we experience the world? So as I talked about last time, concentration meditation allows us to get to a place of one-pointedness. We've focused on the sensation of breath, in and out, in and out, in and out. All of a sudden, our future fades away. All of a sudden, our past fades away. And we come to the present moment experience of our breath, the sensation of breath going out and coming in. And we just hang in there with that. We just stay there for a while. We just rest on that sensation. And we rest on the emptiness of not having a past or a future, which sounds really scary for a lot of people. But it's a rather pleasant experience not to have to worry about the future, 
or have to regret the past. And I have found, as I get older, I have a lot of past thoughts that come up that I wish I had done differently than I did. And then I have to tell myself, well, each one of those little events that you remember where you really screwed up or you weren't as good as you could have been or you didn't do what you were supposed to do because you were a nonconformist like everybody else in the world, that's the level, that's where you were, that part in your life. That's... There wasn't any way to get past that until you did that, you know? And then as we get more and more skillful, hopefully, as we get older, we, we realize we could have done a lot of stuff differently, but we didn't. So now we have to come to a place of acceptance with our unskillfulness, being youthful, being too sure of yourself, I can remember at 28, I knew everything. It was a wonderful place to be in your life. You just was, you were sure that this was, this was reality. And then at 38, you weren't quite as sure. And then at 48, as you were closing in a half a century, you really wondered why you did half the stuff you did. And how could you ever be sure of anything? And then you got to 58 and 68, and you weren't even sure about the day you lived in. And now you're in your 70s, like myself, and I'm going, wow. You know, everybody's dying. And I'm going, wow. And I'm still here. So now, what's the point of my life at 70? What's the point of my life? What do I want to do with the little life I have left? You know? And this is a really important question I think we need to ask ourselves. You know, some people prefer to watch TV. I can, I can dig that. TV is great. It really fills a big void in our life. And we have all those wonderful commercials we get to look at and all the things we don't have and really shouldn't have, but we want anyway. Wow, I'm thinking, this is, this is so cool just to be able to watch TV all day long. But I am so blessed to have a cat colony that needs me every day. I don't care if it's raining, or the sun is shining, or it's cold, or it's warm. I have to put my cat feeding clothes on, which I usually don't wash very often, because the cats prefer the smell of them. And I go in, and I I get the dry food ready, and I get the wet food ready, and then I make sure everybody's coming here. Where's Fatty Patty? I don't see Fatty Patty. Oh, she's over there. Okay. Now I've got to take her food to her specifically. And I feed them, and I watch them eat, and I sit quietly on the porch and just don't really think about much. I just, I'm, I'm there, and the cats are eating, and, and I get a little respite in between the cleanup. You know, and I watch people walk along the sidewalk, and I watch the cars going way too fast on a one-block road, and I'm like, you know, yeah. And the building is going on in the corner, and they're building like a 10-story a apartment building. And everybody's got hammers and nails and wood. And then there's always this machine that backs up. Dee, 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 dee. 
I'm like, what the hell? I'm feeding cats. Let me have peace. There's no peace. I just said, okay, no peace. Okay. If it doesn't bother the cats, they don't care. They're eating. Then I got to do the poop patrol. You know? I got four yards. They poop everywhere. And I tell you, when the grass is sort of wet, it's hard to identify the poop because everything's sort of a dark brown. Because we don't water the grass anymore, and that's turned brown and yellow, and, and the poop just sort of fits right in there, and you, so you're looking around, and ah, like an Easter egg hunt. And you feel good that you found it. You feel like you've succeeded. It's been a good morning. You've got a whole bucket full of poop. Okay. And then, an hour, hour and a half later, after going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, then it's time to go in and do some Facebook posts and check the emails, and, and the website needs to be updated, and I just posted a 2023 Buddhist calendar for free download and PDF. I get so excited about that. Because you go online to find calendars, they're at 10, 15, 20 bucks. I got a PDF that you can download and print and have a desk calendar, a wall calendar, or just have it on your computer for free. But oftentimes people prefer paying for it because they think it has more value if you actually spend money on it than if you just download it for free. So my day continues, and then it's about 4 o'clock. Time to feed the cats again. Another hour and a half of walking back and forth, making sure the dry food is out, the wet food, they change the water. What a wonderful life that is, to be able to spend three hours a day feeding animals, you know? And they're not ferocious and big and beautiful. They're sort of just like, this is their life, and here they are, and then this is my life, and here I am. And people say, well, don't you want to do something that has more value? What could have more value than feeding cats, I say to myself? You know, you're keeping them alive. And anybody that has pets knows the importance of just a little bit of food and a little bit of water and a little bit of kindness. Changes their life, but more importantly, it changes your life as well. Okay. It's, it's a walking and moving and sitting meditation I do every day. I'm just there. Breath going out, breath coming in. I don't talk to the cats. People like to talk to little animals, you know. Hi, how are you today? Scares the hell out of them. You just, your, your presence is your silence. They're, they're not talking to me. I don't have to talk to them. We're in this together. They know the interconnection and interdependence the feeder and the ones being fed have. It's a meditation. So let's talk about mindfulness meditation now. We got right effort. We have right concentration. We have right mindfulness. There are four kinds of mindfulness that we can do. Mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of sensations. Mindfulness of the mind and mindfulness of mental objects. Those are the four kinds of mindfulness meditations we can do. And this is a religious mindfulness. They have secular mindfulness. They have therapeutic mindfulness. So if you have some mental, mental issues, people sometimes go and do mindfulness meditation. 
to correct the flaws of their consciousness and mind. Okay. Well, you know, it seems to work. People are getting paid for that. That's cool. You know, keep everybody employed. That's what I say. But you don't need to go to a specialist to do mindfulness meditation. You just got to figure out what the heck it is and what the object of it is and what's the ultimate goal of mindfulness meditation. You know? So... So let's start with mindfulness of the body. Real simple, real easy to understand. What you need to do throughout your day is just be aware of what position your body is in. So you would say right now, I'm sitting. That's it. Just to be aware of what you're doing. Awareness, mindfulness. We want to understand where our body is and what it's doing. So now we're sitting. And eventually we'll get up. Now I'm standing. We might kneel to pick something up. Now I'm kneeling. We might want to take our afternoon nap. Now I'm lying down. That's it. You're, what you're doing is you're focusing on the present moment experience of your body. What's it doing? There's also walking meditation, which is sort of fun to do if you have time and don't mind looking a little weird. But what you would do is you would stand and then you would walk and you would simply say to yourself, raising, moving, placing. That's one foot. Other foot, raising, moving, placing. Raising, moving, placing. It can take a long time to get somewhere. So the, the idea, it's not, it's not the destination, it's the journey that counts when you're doing walking meditation. But that, that tunes you in. And what do you feel when you're doing that? You feel the earth. You feel the earth. You feel your foot rising, moving, Placing, placing your foot on the earth. You're feeling the connection between your body and this earth that you have lived on for your whole life and rarely thought about your connection to it. But the only time we're not connected to the earth is when we're jumping or flying. But the rest of the time, man, we're just there. We're on the earth. This is our... This is our base of operations, if you will. So how cool is that? Rising, moving, placing. Try it sometime. See how it feels. See how your concentration and your focus shifts from what you need to do an hour from now to right now. Right now. Okay. Now we can do sensation, which I prefer, because I get to sit down to do it. So I'm sitting down and I become aware of my sensations in my body. I start at the top of the head and I go to the tip of the toes. And I just have this sort of scanning kind of awareness that goes through my whole body. And then it goes back up again and then it goes back down again. And what I'm looking for are two things. I'm looking for good sensations and I'm looking for not so good sensations. So the Buddha said we have three kinds of sensations that we can work with. We have pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Now, neutral sensations generally don't 
catch our attention. They're, they're just passed over. So we have good sensations and we have bad sensations. So what's a bad sensation? A bad sensation could be a sore knee. And you're sitting there and you become aware of your sore knee. Now you don't want to just hang around the sore knee because you've got more scanning to do. So you simply note it. I have a sore knee. And then you continue your scanning. And now you might have a sore ankle. My ankle hurts. Okay. Ankle hurts. Mindfulness. Okay. Now we start scanning again. Are there any pleasant sensations? Sometimes there are pleasant sensations. Sometimes at the base of your spine is a little tingling going on. You go, oh, that feels good. I like that. Or that stiff shoulder that you've had now has relaxed and feels comfortable again. And that's a pleasant sensation. You go, oh, that shoulder feels so much better now. And so you note, you note all these little sensations. Pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. And you, and you just do that five, ten minutes. Accumulate the list, if you will. Don't have to write anything down. This is all in your head. Okay. And now you go into a deep state of reflection. I like the word rumination. It reminds me of cows chewing their cud. And they're, they're thinking about stuff. I don't know what a cow thinks about, but they're deep in thought when they chew their cud. So here we are, and now we need to see the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom and all these sensations in order to be liberated in order to end our suffering. And the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom are anicca, dukkha, anatta. Number one, anicca, impermanence, change. Everything is always in a constant state of flux. Nothing stays the same longer than a moment. But you say, no, I disagree with that. Because I know some things last longer than a moment. And I would say to you, well, how long is a moment? How many moments in a minute? As many as you want, man. As many as you want. Moments don't have any duration. Not like a minute or a second or an hour. Okay, so nothing lasts longer than a moment. Okay. So I look at my sensations that I've become aware of. And I say to myself... Were all these sensations impermanent? Did they, did they stay the same the whole time I was meditating? Or did they have this sort of fluctuation? Did they sort of get a little worse, get a little better, get a little worse, get a little better, almost go away sometimes, but then come back? Now, for 20-plus years, I rode a motorcycle. I really enjoyed that. It was fun. It was a sense of freedom. But then I got old and realized I'd be dead soon. And why do it? Why die any sooner than you have to? So I gave my motorcycle away to public radio so they could sell it and make some money. And that motorcycle served a wonderful purpose at the end of my riding it. But I can remember long motorcycle rides. And there's a lot of vibration in a motorcycle. And I can remember having a full bladder. And that urge to urinate. And I would start to look for trees along the journey and places I could hide out just for a few moments so I could take that pee that was so necessary, but I couldn't find them sometimes. And then I realized that that sensation to urinate 
would start in a very subtle way. And then it would get a little bit stronger, and then a little bit stronger. And then it almost seemed to go away. And I took a big breath, ah, okay, that's past. But then it came back even worse than before. So I finally just had to pull over. You know, I couldn't do it anymore. And I thought to myself, isn't that interesting how that sensation never stayed the same? In order to get my attention, it needed to keep changing. If it stayed the same, I could ignore it. But it didn't stay the same. And all these sensations that I became aware of in my mindfulness meditation didn't stay the same, so it could get my attention. And then I would have to say, because everything changes all the time, nothing can ever be perfect. Because something that turns out to be perfect changes also. Nothing stays the same. I went, wow. So that's one of the reasons I suffer as a human being is because everything changes. So let me take it from my practice now and let me turn it to the world. Does everything in the world change all the time? Does anything at all stay the same? And I'd have to say, man, everything changes all the time. And no matter how hard you try to hold on to something or prevent it from changing, it changes anyway. You know, and when I started to lose my hair, I went, no, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lose my hair. There must be some way not to lose my hair. But then there's Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. If anybody could have hair, he could, because he has enough money to buy hair. He doesn't have hair. Just the way it works, things change, you know? When you're 20 and have a full head of hair, you don't even think about it. And then when you get to be 70 and have not too much hair left at all, you think, wow, if I had hair, my head would be so much warmer when it gets cold. Now I've got to wear these little knit hats all the time, little caps, you know, because my head gets cold. Okay. So everything changes, and that's one of the primary reasons our life is ultimately unsatisfactory, because nothing stays the same. Number two, suffering, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, dis-ease. Okay, so did, was every sensation that we became aware of, was it filled with suffering? Well, you know, the, the sore knee and the sore ankle, yeah, it started off in a bad way and it never got any better. So I'd have to say that that... Yeah, that started and didn't change, and it suffered. I suffered because of it. So then, when I thought about the good stuff, that pleasant sensation at the base of the spine, the shoulder didn't quite hurt it much anymore because I was more relaxed than I had been. And, and, and I thought to myself, yeah, but th those were good things. There wasn't any suffering in that. And then... I added impermanence and realized that that good thing was ultimately going to be unsatisfactory 
because the good thing changed and I didn't want it to change. Man, okay. So this gets really depressing now because here you are doing your mindfulness meditation, therapeutic, religious, secular, however you want to look at it, and you're coming up with all this stuff that is sort of undeniable. It's sort of it, the, this observation, this empirical perspective that allows us to see the true nature of these sensations. And it's a little disappointing. Because we don't need to go there. None of us need to ever go there. We can be deluded our whole life and just be happy campers. But for some reason, some of us decide to investigate what it means to be us and what it means to have a human experience. And then we start to uncover a bunch of stuff. And the problem with this, I'm going to warn you right now, the problem with this is you can't go back. You can't go back thinking the way you used to think because it's been proven wrong. You know? And that came to me about 10 years into my meditation practice. That I'm stuck. I can't go back. I can't stay right here and not go forward because everything changes all the time. The only thing I can do is continue forward. If there is such a thing as forward. I, I, and, and it's a little depressing because, because all those little skills and techniques you used to bury your head in the sand and not observe the true nature of your life, they don't work anymore. They took away the sand. You go, man, man, man. But now we come to the third aspect, which gives us all hope. The third aspect is not self, anatta. They used to call it not soul. But you know what? Then Christianity came. So you say not soul and people just freak out. Because people like to have souls. You know? And I gave mine up a long time ago. I figured I, I can't find one. Where does it live? Does it exist? How much does it weigh? What does it look like? Nobody could tell me. Nobody could give me any satisfactory answers what the soul was. Okay. But they could tell me what the soul wasn't. <laughs> so I'm going, okay, not soul, not self. 2022, much more important. 2022, not self. We are not who we think we are, and that is a really good thing. Because that means we can be anything we want, or nothing at all. It is up to us. You know, and if you don't know who you are, all you have to do is wait a little while, and somebody will tell you who you are. <laughs> and you go, that's not who I am. Well, who are you? Well, you know, I'm name and form. I'm 32 parts of the body. I'm the five aggregates. The Buddha never said we were simply one thing. He said we were a combination of factors always in flux. He couldn't pinpoint one thing that we could say, this is who I truly am, or this is what I truly am. You, you, you can't find it. Keep looking, though. I'm waiting. I keep reading. I keep wondering. I keep listening to Dharma talks. So, so why is that a good thing? 
That means we don't have to defend anything. We don't have to defend anything and get mad and angry. No, no. You can't say that about me. Who's the me? Who's the me we're talking about? No, you don't understand who I am. No, you don't either. Nobody understands who you are. And who you are is just this moment. How long is the moment? As long as you want it to be. There's no duration. And then somebody else shows up. Similar, maybe familiar, but it ain't you. It's never been you. It's part of your team. You're running a relay race through this life. And when you were 10, that was your member. That was your team member. That was the guy you were. And then you had the baton, and you had to hand it off to the next guy who would turn to 20. And now that's a completely different guy than the guy that was 10. So he was your team member, and he was running that leg. And then you turned 30, and you handed it off again. And then you turned 40, and you handed the baton off again. And somehow there was a causal connection between all the people that you used to be and all the people that you're going to be and this person that you are right now is really limited because this person has to define themselves and be somebody because if you're not anybody, you can have a big problem. You can have a really big problem. And there are a lot of people now who are older who are becoming nobody, and we call it Alzheimer's. And we start to realize that you can't function unless you're somebody. Okay? Literally, you can't function if you're somebody. And I can remember reading stories about Indian gurus who became enlightened. And people had to help them do everything because they couldn't do anything for themselves anymore. You know? They had to feed them, make sure they're comfortable. We don't want to go there. That's not freedom. The, we don't want to change our consciousness to that extent. We simply want to know and observe our consciousness and know that we don't have to be anyone and we have to be everyone. Okay? So what does that mean? That means when you went to Thanksgiving meal, you had to be a member of the family. Your parents, your brothers and sisters, your friends, they all recognize you. You couldn't say, no, that's not me. I meditate. I realize that I'm not anything you think I am. That would just ruin the whole day for everybody. They think you're crazy now. So you can't do that. And if you're pulled over for speeding, you've got to be the guy in the driver's license. You can't say it's not me. I know the picture is similar to how I look. So we got to be somebody. But can we look at that somebody as simply a function or a process and not an event? We're all events in our own mind. We're all special, unique. But really, we're simply a process that's in a concentrated flux and change and not identifiable in any real way. There's no essence. There's no essence. There's no... That's what I liked about Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. You know, 
there, there was a, uh, a report that the students needed to do, and, and so they needed to find, define something that didn't exist, which is like the value or the essence of the thing they were defining. And this came to my mind as I'm reading the book. There were two motorcycles, particularly. There's uh, the author's motorcycle and his best friend's motorcycle. His best friend had a BMW and the author had a Honda. Okay. So I imagined, okay, if they went to a Kmart parking lot and they had tools and they took apart the motorcycles into the 10,000 pieces. And 10,000 pieces here and 10,000 pieces there. Okay. In which part of the motorcycle does the motorcycle essence live? In which part of the motorcycle does the motorcycle live? And they would go through all the pieces and they would say, I can't find the essence. I can't find it. It's not there. And so then you go, wow. Okay. And yet when the 10,000 pieces came together and became one thing, it was noticeable. You could tell that something happened. And this thing had value, and this thing had a name, and this thing was desirable and had a function. And all the things that came with the 10,000 pieces given the illusion of one, not many. The illusion of one, not many. This was a major stepping stone, I think, for a lot of humans in the evolution of humanity is when we became one, became one thing. And some of it may have to do with the Jewish tradition and the one God. Now, the Buddha never met a Jew. They were, they were the Jewish people were here and the Buddha was here. And, and in between, they had the Hindu people. And so what kind of gods did the Hindus have? They had many gods. They had many gods with a small g. And there was a hierarchy of gods. Okay. And then the Jewish people said, well, there's only one god. You go, wow, one, one. Became such an important concept, you know? And in postmodernism, what we start to see, and it took me a long time to figure out what the hell postmodernism was, they are deconstructing the one. They are, what makes the one? What makes the one, one? <laughs> it's the many. The many have come together and created the illusion of one. Okay. So in our case, we have mind and body, the 32 parts of the body. We have the five aggregates. It goes on and on. The Buddha describing what a human being is. But the many has become the one, and that's our illusion. That is our delusion and that is our self, our ego, our I, me, and mine, which helps us live in a very complicated world now that we have created because we have become one, and this one can change a lot of stuff in the world, like redirect rivers, build massive buildings and bridges. It's just amazing what we can do when we became somebody and have an education and have a lot of other people who are somebody helping us change everything. But now, 
as the meditator, we're sitting there and we're thinking, okay, so what does this mean in my life? What is the final goal? What is all this telling me I need to do or what will happen if I continue to do this long enough and my conclusion is that this will help you let go. How is it going to help me let go? Number one, everything changes. You can't hold on to anything. You can't cling to it. You can't grasp it. You can't force it not to change. Everything changes. So you have to let the stuff go. Does that mean you're never going to have good stuff and fun stuff and happy stuff? No, no, no. You'll have all the fun and happy and good stuff that you had before. Except this time, when it leaves, your hand will be open. Not closed, clinging. Okay? You'll let it go. It will come and it will go. And there'll be no resistance on your part. That will reduce your suffering dramatically. Number two, everything ultimately is unsatisfactory. So why am I holding on to it? Why do I grasp it? Why do I have a desire for it to be with me for my whole life if everything ultimately is unsatisfactory? What's wrong with me? I, I want to I let the unsatisfactory stuff go. If I have to left, let the satisfactory stuff go, surely I can let the unsatisfactory stuff go. This makes perfect sense. So your hand is open, the unsatisfactory stuff is there, and then it suddenly goes away because everything changes. And you don't have to deal with it anymore. There'll be other stuff that'll be unsatisfactory, but that goes away too. The irony of this change and constant state of flux is that is what's giving us our freedom. That gives us our freedom from who we are and who we think we are. So this third part of I'm not really the self I think I am. It's a process. It's been created because of mind and body, education, peer groups, work, relationships, all the things that go into making you who you are doesn't exist in any kind of event or unchangeable way. So who's going to hold on to it? Who's in charge of this? Maybe we should just go with the flow. Let the stuff come and let the stuff go. Enjoy the good. Not be too despondent with the bad but simply allow it to arise, exist, and pass away in the same way our walking meditation allowed us to rise, move, place. Rise, move, place. Okay. And that takes us forward. That moves us to the next moment. So by not clinging, by not holding on to by not grasping. We are able to slide effortlessly into the next moment, into the next moment, into the next moment, into the next moment. And not be too distracted by all the good stuff and the bad stuff. Because we know everything changes. 
bad stuff too. We know everything's unsatisfactory, good stuff too. We know that you've got little or nothing to do with it. You're simply one of the 10,000 reasons something happens in your life. You're one of the 10,000 reasons something happens in your life. So you have a little bit to say about it. You've got that one little voice. But then there's 9,999 other voices who are saying, no, no, we're going to go this way. I don't care what you think. We're going to go this way. And this is the thing that really fascinated me about Buddhism, is it just laid it out so clearly after reading a lot of books and after meditating and after finding the thread. There's a thread, a string, that runs through all the teachings of the Buddha. All the teachings of the Buddha. And any book you read on Buddhism and any Dharma talk you listen to on Buddhism, the thread is there. And the deal is to find the thread. What is the thread? What ties all these teachings together? Because they seem so unique and oftentimes unrelated to each other. And yet there's a thread that runs through them. Now, I can't tell you what it is. That's your job. You've got to find the thread. But once you find the thread, it all makes sense. And the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to end your suffering while you're alive. You don't have to wait till you die. You don't have to wait for that final liberation in heaven. You, you can do it right now, today. Because you're already perfect. You just got to get rid of all the stuff that doesn't allow you that perfection. And you have to come to the present moment. Because that's where you find your liberation. That's where you find the end of suffering. Not in tomorrow, not in yesterday, but right now. And so all these techniques in mindfulness meditation and concentration meditation are forcing us in the direction of the present moment of our life. Forcing us to experience and re-experience our life in a totally unique and skillful way. And the secret is to let go. And how do you let go? There's a thousand different ways to let go. But to understand those three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, it's impermanence, suffering, and not self, that's the trigger. That's the trigger that you pull, pardon the gun analogy, that allows you to be liberated and free. Free from what? Free from suffering. You have a profound acceptance of the way things are. Everything in this world is exactly how it's supposed to be, which is really disappointing. <laughs> and our job as a Buddhist is to understand the difference. So we look at somebody and they're suffering, and they're suffering because they're hungry. And that's just the way it's supposed to be, because they're hungry. But as a Buddhist, we say, well, maybe I can reduce some of that hunger so they don't have to suffer as much. It's not indifference. We, we're not indifferent. 
we don't ignore the suffering. We understand that suffering is there, but we also understand that sometimes we can help reduce the suffering. In order to end the suffering completely, they have to do it. But we might be able to give them some techniques, encouragement, be their cheerleader, help them along the way, a meal here, you know, a little refuge over here, some new clothes over here. There's all sorts of things humans can do for other humans to reduce the suffering, even though the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. So we have that acceptance. We have that acceptance. We see the world and we go, yeah, okay. Now we say to ourselves, how can I help? How can I help? Not make the world a better place. How can I help reduce the suffering? And if you try to make the world a better place, you're going to fail completely. Because it's never been a really good place ever. Look at all those dinosaurs. Man, they were just wiped out in no time at all. After hundreds of thousands of years, you know. Good. You know, how about the oceans and the water and the, and the pollution and all this other stuff? There was just a news story the other day about a, a, a liner. Uh, Going through a strait, it was it was in the ocean, and this and it was wonderful. There were thousands of people on this liner, and it was going through the straits. And a giant wave hit the side of the ship, killed somebody, tore out the windows, hurt eight other people. Totally unexpected. Nobody knew that was going to happen. Apparently, they have these rogue waves that will come in and get you. And all these people who just wanted to have a good time and be on the ocean and see the world, and bang. So this stuff always happens all the time. And how can I help? And that was what the Buddhists would do. Once you end your own suffering, you look at the story of the Buddha. He ended his own suffering. And for the next years of his life, he helped others end their suffering. He didn't go to the cave. He didn't just enjoy his freedom from suffering. He said, how can I help? So there you go. This is quite a journey, this Buddhism stuff, because you're going to be faced with some really hard decisions and choices. And you're going to be faced with a lot of reality that you could have ignored if you wanted to. And yet you decided to face it head on and see how to work with it. See how to adjust your way of acceptance, of letting go of being a good person, of having thoughts of generosity and compassion and wisdom. Man. Okay, I think I've said enough today.